Hi, and welcome to Loops, a podcast brought to you by Caribou Projects. We're an arts collective based in Bristol, and each episode we collaborate with a guest artist, cultivating conversations around social histories, folklore, visual arts, music, and everything else that falls between the cracks. In this episode, we'll be talking about cassette tapes. My name's Fozia Ismail. I run a Somali supper club called Aruello Eats, which is also a research platform for thinking about identity. I'm also one third of a Somali art collective called Dakan Collective. Camel meat and tapes was an interdisciplinary and intergenerational project working with Somali elders looking at the use of tape letters in the Somali community during migration. We spoke to a range of people for this episode to get different perspective on diasporic tape cultures, the practice of recording onto tape, preservation, as well as destruction. Ibrahim Hersey is a poet and archivist and co-founder of Waberi Phone, which practices an integrative, archival-based approach in the preservation, revival and development of Somali art and culture. Asma Jama is a Danish-born Somali poet and artist and is also one-third of the Dagan Collective. We also spoke to Wajid Yassin, a Manchester-born, London-based artist whose work draws on an interdisciplinary approach to develop sound-based works encompassing installations, live performances, acousmatic music, graphic scores and sound sculptures. He's the director of the Sound Art Research Cooperative, Modus Arts, who are currently working on Tape Letters, an oral history project aiming to identify, collect and archive messages sent on cassette tape in the 1960s through to the 1980s by families who migrated to the UK from Pakistan between 1950 and 1970. Finally, we spoke to Heimbach, a Berlin-based electronic music composer and performer who uses modular synths, tape and test equipment to create experimental music. Through his YouTube channel, Heimbach brings experimental music techniques to a wider audience. We spoke to Heimbach about his love of working with tape, the physicality of the medium and the unique sound that tape recordings have. My name is Ibrahim Hersey. I'm a student, um, a digital archivist and a peer researcher for the Centre for Mental Health. The first way I was exposed to the cassette tape was in a religious context. So the Quran was really recorded a lot on the cassette tapes of my dad and my mum used to have hundreds of these of the Quran with different reciters. And that was the way I was raised in a kind of, you know, very, you know, Quran like filled household. So automatically the cassette tape, you know, extremely nostalgic. And then as I grow older and I'm trying to connect more with my culture and learn more about, you know, Somali literature and music. My dad says he has this small cachet of like cassette tapes. 
Hi, I'm Asma Jama. I'm a poet and visual artist based in Bristol. I mean, I guess I was fascinated that Somali people would use cassette tapes as a medium. I mean, my experience of them has really been um, cassettes that have had Quran on them or Islamic lectures. And it turns out, when I asked my parents later, that they were actually, I think, originally cassettes that people had recorded on and then they'd recorded over it. And then after Fozia told me about the project, I went to America and I met my uncle and he said that he'd um, had these cassettes and he'd actually digitised them. And I didn't even know that these survived the war. Like, I just had no idea. Like, I didn't know, like, there was that many of these available out there. So, you know, I was I was over the moon. And because of my previous, like, relationship with them, I just felt so comfortable around this medium. quite emotional because cassettes still they had the voices of his um, family members that had um, passed on and he was pretty on board with giving them to me and I thought it was interesting that he chosen to um, preserve that I think for him it was the last remnant of home that he had because he left at quite a young age I think even back then, I was quite aware of the emotional attachment people had to these cassette tapes. I always tried to be wary of coming into spaces and saying to people, I've got this hobby, you have to give me the cassette tapes for me to perform. I didn't want to ever be like that, because I knew that for a lot of these people, it might be one of the few links they've got back home. You know, there's a lot of emotional attachment to it, basically. In the end, I decided not to, like, push him on or really remind him to give me access to that, because... I guess he was really concerned that my mom would accidentally come across it. So what I would do is, like, with my family, it's a lot easier, especially with my immediate family. I mean, my dad doesn't really listen to music like that anymore. So he just said to me, take them. And I said, OK. So I would take these and then I would um, digitise them. I bought this little really basic rubbish setup, but and then I would digitise them. And then it became a question of, I've got, what, like six or seven? And I want to get more, so how do I get more? So I would say to some family members that were extended, you know, please let me borrow these. Um, I will record them, I will digitise them, and then I'll give it them to you. And I'll also give you the other ones that I've digitised, that kind of thing. So I, I always wanted them to feel like, this is yours. I'm, I'm just going to literally, like, make a copy of it. I'm going to bring it right back, same condition and that. And also with some people, I might not have even asked because I thought you get a vibe of people, right? So um, so people knew about the project, but you could feel like maybe they might stiffen a bit or whatever. So I understood kind of I'm not going to ask them for this because they're not going to feel comfortable with it. I think I was just fascinated by, like, what, what it is to record your voice onto something that lasts after you've gone. And I know that, like, cassette tapes are, like, very, like, ephemeral. So, I don't know. Perhaps not the best thing to use. I think the main reason it was recorded is, A, it's, like, cheap in terms of, you know, to produce. For example, there used to be these things called silsilids, which are, like, chains of poetry, right? So one person would say a poem and about a serious topic and issue that has, you know, taken place, and another person would reply, and another person would reply, and so on and so on and so on and so on. 
So what you have is, in that context, you have this cassette which is easy to produce and reproduce. So you don't really have to be rich to make the poem, right? And to reproduce so that people can share it amongst each other. It's also cheap. And then you've got this thing where it's small, so you're able to carry everywhere. I mean, when the cassette tape was brought, it revolutionized these cellulars because more people could engage because you have this small, like, little piece of plastic that can reach from, you know, the Arabian Peninsula to, you know, Djibouti to Somalia to Ethiopia to everywhere. So wherever Somalis live, these cassettes would find themselves in a nomadic context. Everything needs to be able to have like multiple functions or it needs to be, it needs to earn its place. That's why they don't really carry drums because it's extra weight. I mean, you might hear it here and there. Instead, they'll use a motor and they'll put like a sheepskin or something on top of it and bang that as a drum. And it's actually louder than like the drums that they might use in the cities. But everything needs to have that, you know, it needs to earn its place. Well, I guess it's not just like cassette tapes that are being sent, it's camel meat. And, you know, that's still sent across the border. My parents are like very, not the whole community really is very clued up on how to send things abroad. What What's, what's the best packing service to use? <laughs> so like recently I sent something to my friend in South Africa and it's like lost in the post. And then my parents were like, oh, you should have just used DHL shouldn't have used royal mail (laughs) i'm like i didn't know that you knew about that but they do yeah and then also like anytime someone's flying to kenya because my grandma lives there there's always like a phone around to like anyone that has family in kenya and then they're like is there anything that you want me to like take with me and i just feel like communities sort of existing across like borders that are a lot more porous than we think they are maybe is interesting I just think the world is like way more expansive and way more interconnected than the people in power at the moment would like to admit. Hi, my name is Wajid Yassin. I'm a Manchester-born, London-based sound artist. Sort of originally started as a music producer 20-odd years ago. Sort of infamous in the industrial noise scene, sort of, sort of experimental sort of music thing, and then I sort of shifted into sonic arts practice and set up uh, Modest Arts, uh, which I'm the director of about 10 years ago. And, uh, and we're sort of interested in interdisciplinary sonic arts practice. The project came about from a visit I paid to my mum's home in Manchester about five years ago, actually. And it was on the back of me wanting to revisit my dad's voice one of the things that he used to do was to sing knots and knots are a kind of a devotional hymn, right? And he was asked to sing knots in people's homes, in mosques and wherever, you know, and it got to the point where people were asking him to record these knots on cassette tape. And I found some of these cassettes and it was lovely to sort of, you know, to obviously revisit the uh, the knots themselves. But alongside these cassettes, you know, my mum's sort of drawer in her bedroom with these other cassettes. And when I had, you know, I had these cassettes in my hand, I was like, I remember this. I remember being pulled into doing this when I was a kid and I'm having to sort of say, you know, say hello to some auntie or uncle in Pakistan, like really reluctantly. And uh, and all the kind of memories that I had of that as a boy and uh, growing up in Manchester sort of just came back to me in that one moment. And I kind of realised when I had this cassette in my hand, I had something pretty special, you know. I, I kind of essentially was holding a sort of historical artefact, really, a piece of kind of British heritage, actually, which is what I've now come to realise is quite an important one. 
in some weird way, in that moment, you know, like ideas sort of hit you really hard sometimes, you know, and I kind of suddenly realized I had something pretty important on my hands, you know, right there and then, you know. And I kind of knew that actually if our family did this, it couldn't have been just us lot, you know. And um, so I sort of went on a bit of a hunt to find more of them. And yeah, I found loads. <laughs> I mean, the tape letters themselves, they contain, for one thing, very private messages, right? So they contain things like land disputes. I'll just give you an example of, of one of the stories that sort of that we've touched on recently, right? What happened in this case was he uh, came over to the UK with his sister when he was 12. And um, his father then had to go back to Pakistan. So essentially, him and his sister grew up with their uncle here in, in the UK. And so they were essentially parentless. And his dad used cassette tapes as a way of bringing this guy up remotely. All, all of this guy's moral code was informed by kind of what was going on in the tapes themselves, right? So, the, you know, the guy was like, yeah, this is, where, this is how you should study. This is how you should be behaving in British society. All, all of that, right? And he'd be scolding him for this and that, whatever. And, and he basically built up the relationship that the cassettes were his dad. That, they, that was the only way that he could access his dad through these things. So his dad passed away, and essentially these cassettes are the ashes. They're the sonic ashes of his dad. Right? He's given these to us. And in his interview, he said something like, you know when the, you've got an imaginary friend, right? And everyone kind of knows about that. As a kid, you have an imaginary friend. As a kid, my imaginary friend was my dad. That's devastating. That, that's an extraordinary thing, right? They contain things like recipes. You know, actually we found out in one instance there's a, a restaurateur in, in Bradford who, um, who set up his business on the back of the recipes that were sent to him by his dad in Pakistan. We've had couples that were arranged to be married uh, because that was kind of one of the traditional ways for people to get married, obviously. Um, and they couldn't actually use phones because it was just, it wasn't very private for them. So they used these public call offices and they weren't private enough either. So they used these cassette tapes between each other. They sent cassette tapes to each other for every two weeks for three years. And, and so they've got 60 each and they essentially fell in love over the tapes, right? Um, and you know, so sometimes you know, when you fall in love, it's kind of, it hits you hard and hits you straight away. Whereas for them, it just, it's flowered over over time, you know, and so it's really amazing for that to actually be, you know, to manifest on the tapes, right? So you've got you've got all of that, you know, and then you've got kind of the usual domestic stuff of like we're having to sort of trudge through snow to get to the laundrette, and you're hearing the voice of mom's crying. I mean, like there's all sorts of extraordinary sort of capture of what it was like to be a migrant, right? But also people like me, who the the product of migration, the children of migration, and kind of essentially how they roped into sort of to deal with these messages at the time, you know? So so they're pretty significant in terms of like a, a sort of sonographic snapshot of the time, you know? We stumbled on all sorts of, you know, sort of ethical uh, issues with regards to, um, you know, so what we'd make public, given the private nature of these things. But the the, the cassettes themselves, they weren't always intended for one-to-one listening. There was a lot of sort of group listening, right? So there'd be sort of groups within, like familial groups, like family groups. There'd be like, a, if they were being sent to Pakistan, there'd be sort of uh, neighbor groups as well, you know? So we've got all of that. We've got, in some instances, we had, you know, sexually explicit uh, conversations that were going on there. 
one of the cassettes was so explosive in terms of the content and has the implication to cause damage to like numbers of families to this day, the only way that it would be included in the archive and be accepted in the archive and given to us was if we wrote up a specific contract, which we did, and it's basically part of a closed, it's now it's closed access uh, at the Bishop's Gate and nobody can access it for 50 years, right? So that's an interesting anomaly for us. And that particular cassette, it just hits every ethical red line, <laughs> right? <laughs> Hi, I'm Heinbach. I'm an electronic musician and composer from Berlin. And I've got a YouTube channel where I talk about experimental music techniques and weird gear. Um, and, for example, tape. I started out with tape, uh, I think, when I was eight, because that was the main recording medium that was there. So with friends, I redubbed uh, old cowboy audio plays so <laughs> that idea went nowhere after the first like five minutes as we discovered how much work it is to put on an audio play so uh, i stopped using tape as my main medium to record until i was 15 and was in a band and tape was just the only thing we had to get any kind of recording and usually it was the same recorder that we used to record these on these western plays just put in a corner and that was the sound and all that we had. And I quickly started to experiment because the band felt kind of limiting to me. So I started to experiment with recording onto tape, like recording to the left side and then dubbing that onto the right side and putting in radio feedback, playing piano with one hand while manipulating an FM radio and creating soundscapes, ambient soundscapes that way. I've been destroying and working with tape for quite some time. Like I love to do all kinds of manipulations with that. For example, destruction loops, where I take tape loops and record something on them. Maybe it's something that I want to be exercised, like hateful comments on my channel and other people's channels. So I recorded those, put knives to that, and over time, the magnetic dust that kept the information was scraped from the plastic that keeps the magnetic dust together and the mean comments just faded all the racism the nationalism the simple meanness and hate just passed on into noise and the simple meanness and hate just passed on into noise and the simple meanness and hate just passed on into noise the simple meanness and hate just passed on into noise and which was very cathartic. I kept around like tapes when I was walking around, going out. I would kept like one or two tapes like in a pocket. And then uh, if I found someone like, I don't know, it could be interesting just to give it to that person. I gave them that cassette and maybe a DJ and uh, they would play it. It's a bit like, yeah, same with vinyl. If you have like a vinyl of your record and you're hanging out in a record store and there's a DJ come on and give it to them and you hear it next day, you hear it like in a show or something. It's so direct it's just something very very human in the end you just pass on this data that is recorded and people can just plug it in and there's no like entering a complex download code scanning stuff on your phone maybe maybe this is kind of like a 
a conversation that's been had about digital and analog spaces, right? You know, like what it means to sort of have a Zoom uh, meeting than what that, what that feels like to sort of to meet somebody in person, right? And the kind of slightly disembodied thing about digital experiences. I think the tapes just represent something analog, right? It has a physical presence in the in the space and all of that. You know, you, it's all surrounded by tactileness, right? We respond to the physics of objects in space. So I think in one thing, they that's what they may represent to people. A long time before the cassette came around, there was open reels. And that's technology that was developed yeah, mostly in Germany and then uh, got spread around the world thanks to it being pretty good and uh, Bing Crosby wanting to record his sessions in the best possible way. And back in the day, the best possible way was direct to vinyl. And that wasn't really the good quality or didn't give you the length that you needed. You had to take a lot of breaks. And then from the war, a friend of his brought like these German magnetic tape machines. He was like, oh, this is interesting. So he started investing in this company that was building this and it was called Ampex. And Ampex became one of the main tape machine and tape makers of the world. So these open reels, they had a fantastic sound, but they were open reels. So it could easily happen that you would just spill all this beautiful tape all across the room if you weren't careful. It's, it, it wasn't user-friendly. So ever since tape was around, there were many, many attempts to make it more user-friendly. And cassette was the one that uh, became the most successful Cassette tapes were clearly used in different molds, right? So they were originally developed in 1963 by uh, Philips, and, and it was made essentially as a music media. So it was kind of a distribution thing, right? So they just made, for the most part, they were kind of for pretty much distributing pre-recorded music. And of course, what's happened to them is is what is interesting for me, which is kind of when people start reappropriating like technology, right? So they're kind of using it for something else. I still think it's very futuristic that you had like camel herders also recording with cassettes. So I don't know. I think it, it feels very Afrofuturistic looking at like other ways that we have like indigenous technologies that aren't just tech tech. Because a lot of people have been making sourdough over lockdown and so have I. <laughs> and then my mom was like, you're not doing anything interesting or new. <laughs> this is what we used to do <laughs> all of the time yeah we had that also with like clicks and cuts for example like when the era of the CD skipping becomes the sound of the music there was like a movement of artists using the clicks and cuts all the sound of errors of audio editing and all that stuff that you don't want and made that the feature so that became the snare drum that became the Hyatt and that became like uh, a huge influence on minimal techno so all these eras of media are interesting. And the medium is, is always the thing, like from the manufacturer's point of, point of view, it always tries to be the best representation of the sound that you get. But it's the artists that explore the, uh, the, the point where it breaks. Cassette tapes and records, you know, they, they have the kind of, the, their use right now. You know, you've got that kind of, yeah, we're going to use retro tech to listen to, to music that we just bloody stream now, right? But there is a there is a particular pleasure in listening to records and listening to tapes, but, you know, I mean, they are inconvenient too. 
And nowadays, um, I think tape is perfect in its quality for stuff like ambient music, something. I mean, my kids still listen to tapes when they fall asleep. So I've got these old recorders that uh, playback devices from schools uh, that sound just great compared to anything modern. And they listen to old plays that I used to listen to when I was a kid. And just the noisy quality and the constant just adds to the very calming feeling. So our Betty Phone is an organization and we've got two parts. So number one is we want to educate Somalis, um, younger Somalis, diaspora Somalis about their culture, their literature, their language. Um, when I was starting out, I found it extremely difficult to learn anything. It took me like a few months just to find books. Like it was really difficult for me to just find these things. So we want to make it easier for people to do this. So that's one of the reasons why we've got the page, but we also want to do more other stuff in terms of educating the community, being out in the community, working with the community. That's one aspect of it. You know, we always need to give back to the community. And then the second aspect is Wabari Records, which re-releases old songs. So by this, our intentions are twofold. We want to A, give ownership back to the artist. A lot of these artists have constantly been exploited by Somalis and non-Somalis alike. So we want to give them ownership of their music. And we also want to get that music on a wider platform so that younger Somalis can connect with it. You know, we really want younger diaspora Somalis to connect with the culture, to find home in the culture. There seems to be like a real hunger for art and cultural work around Somalia and the Somali diaspora. And so like we had people engaging across the world really and I feel like that's not unique to our project it's more just like with with lots of Somali creative projects is that it's speaking to like Canadian Somalis, Somalis in, in Kenya, Australian Somalis and so on and I feel like that that's coming from like the fact that people want to reconnect with their heritage, um, understand themselves in a way where it's not just through this very colonial lens or or what you're taught in institutions and so a lot of the projects that I've seen have kind of worked around archiving understanding like what a nation is and how like Somali nationhood is like a myth yeah and I guess like also a lot of looking back to the past but with a, a critical lens and looking at the role of women but also at the same time, I feel like there's still this consuming of art and cultural work without really appreciating cultural workers. But I think that's just like across all of society where it's like, I don't really think Somali artists are valued in the community, but I don't think any artists are valued in any community really. It's like their work is appreciated and it's seen as useful but I feel like it's kind of rare for them to be seen as valuable. One of the contracts that we gave to one of the artists, we had several people look over it and people were like, I think that's a bit weird. So we said, we'll take that in and we're not going to say no, because if it's if you think it's weird, then we're going to speak to the artist about it. And we're like, hmm, maybe that is weird because we're new to this. So then we change it. Like it's, it's as simple as that. And we, we, we try and do that um, with everything and, and we want to work just in whatever capacity we can to support the community. So everything we do, like 
in the way that the motor in traditional nomadic society has like you know multiple functions we want everything we do to have multiple functions and each one of them to be supporting the community in terms of crate digging and we see this culture of what people have aptly named culture vultures these these culture vultures who will come into the community take what they feel they have a right to reproduce it share it amongst their own communities and not give anything back i think even earlier i just right now i just spoke about how i was scared of even asking my relatives of these cassette tapes i always came with that kind of thing where this is so important to a group of people how can i come and take what is not mine right the thing is though if you're coming into a community who has been mistreated and they've received the, you know, the short end of the stick so many times, there's been a lot of malpractice in the community. You need to come in with a kind of thing where if this doesn't even belong to me, this is not even my culture, but what I might be able to do is, and what might make up for that is that I'm going to come in, I'm going to build something for these people. I might build like a building where they can store these cases or I might fun lessons so youngers can learn music and so that the culture can develop i might do like just a bunch of measures right so that that can help the community and i'm also going to give extremely favorable terms to these musicians because it's their life's work so they deserve to get as much as possible right but that attitude is not held the attitude that is held is i am doing something for these people because i'm going to show this music to a wider audience and what they tend to do is these culture watches they conflate that with discovering it i have discovered this music you haven't discovered anything mate there's a rich musical tradition in this country for a ridiculously long time and a lot of these people they work in really bad ways they'll lie about their intentions to people in the community so they can get close to artists they do a lot of questionable things and you can just see that when it when when you see all of these little things they're doing you understand that this is not a pure project this is not for the community this is not going to benefit the community we just look at the fact that in the end the somali community is contributing to like the wider world story in terms of where we're gifting you this culture this music a lot of these songs their melodies i mean the roots of it the poetic forms have been around for hundreds of years thousands of years even so we are giving you a integral piece of ourselves you know uh, the thread of our poetics our literature our art Two people that we interviewed on the pilot project have since passed away, and and their families were like unbelievably grateful to have us have interviewed them, you know, and that we could just pass on this audio to them and say, look, here's your mum's voice, here's your dad's voice, right? And of course, we as you know people who've dropped in to sort of interview these people can ask them questions that their children wouldn't have been able to do, right? I think there seems to be like a reluctance to talk about the war and the events surrounding it I think there was only really like one time where I actually you know sat down with my mom and asked her outright um and that was for a a project but then I I regretted doing that because it wasn't I think it kind of um I think she chose to take herself back to and remember some very painful histories for me and I just I didn't think that was a a good method of approaching it especially when like I hadn't planned for any aftercare or anything afterwards and I just I think a lot of people have just you know moved on with their lives and I think there's there's cassette tapes like for example with my dad like 
he got a cassette tape from his uncle telling him to live a good life and take care of himself. Um, kind of like advice or like wani or, or, or not dardaram but like sort of similar. Like you give advice to somebody that's far away from you. I think it was just perhaps too painful. I don't think anyone really wanted to revisit that. Like even when we were working with the elders, we didn't bring up the war and they didn't bring up the war. And when they were talking about migration, they kind of spoke around it. You know, it was just like, we all like um, fled and then we came to this country and there's no real revisiting. And I think even like with my conception of what happened during the war, it's very murky, it's, 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 it's completely, it's, it's all in fragments. And you know, there'll be like, I might just be randomly working sometimes and my mum will come in and like, tell me um, a story out of nowhere. And I don't really know where it fits. So that thing about about sort of essentially capturing some of their feelings, some of these people's ideas about, you know, before they pass away is a great thing, you know? And I mean, the fact that I can revisit my dad's singing is lovely, but I bloody wish I'd interviewed him in the way that I've interviewed my mum. And for sure, all of this kind of wisdom and knowledge and information, it's all bound into these guys, you know? So we want to sort of tease it out. From the preservation of voices in the form of sonic ashes of loved ones held in tape, to the creative use of destructive loops to cathartically drown out hate. The emotional value and attachment of this particular medium of cassette tapes speaks to the significance of analogue technology and what it means to us in a digital age. Cassette tapes are an artefact that, as Wajid beautifully describes, capture a sonographic snapshot of time. Through the conversations that I've had with these wonderful artists, it's really helped me think through the next steps of camel meat and tapes. I really want to work through some of the emotional weight of archiving by creating something new. And that's something that we did with the Duck Arn Collective soundscape. One of the things I've learned through making this podcast is the way in which tapes have always been an accessible medium of exchanging parts of ourselves with others and that this helps us make sense of some of the complex realities of our worlds. Thanks for listening, and if you want to find out more information about Cassette Letters and our contributors, you can head to our website. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to be notified about future episodes, then subscribe on your platform. <laughs>